Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Welcome back to the Restoration Living Podcast, and I hope that this time of year has been a blessing to you as we are moving into the end of the holiday season and uh, getting ready to focus on the new year. Uh, we're just so thankful uh, for your support, you know, because this is a free podcast. We we don't ask for anything as we don't make anything off of this. This is a labor of love, but what we do want to say is thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for, you know, following along with us. And as we have wrapped up the Christmas season, before we start the new year, we've got some time to get back into our Bible study through the book of Revelation. And when we left off at the end of Revelation chapter 13, we are seeing this repeated motif. We've said that that in the middle of the text, there are three sets of seven. There were seven seals that were uh, used to seal up the land deed of the promised land of the Mosaic Covenant to the people of Israel. And we saw how after that land deed was opened up, there was not another land deed made, that God did not make another covenant with a specific people. Instead, we saw how the book of Revelation says in numerous places that now the whole earth belongs to God. And we talked about how that's a um, kind of a sometimes confusing situation because God is in control over everything. But because of the rebellion of humanity, the earthly beings that God created, and some of the heavenly beings that God created, that the rule and reign of the earth that was originally meant to be handed over and delegated to humanity, to human beings, was taken over by the spiritual beings, that God at the table of nations, and we see this in Deuteronomy 32 and of course in Genesis 6, we see this heavenly and earthly rebellion take place and how God assigned the rule of the nations to heavenly beings and that as just as we saw in the multiple Psalms we read in previous episodes, that the heavenly beings because they chose to rule selfishly, they led human beings to sinful, evil practices. And in the extra-biblical rabbinic literature in books like the Book of Enoch, the Book of the Watchers, the Book of Jubilees, all of these things, the Book of the Giants, have this Jewish belief and teaching that the heavenly beings set themselves up as the pagan gods and had humans worship them instead of the one true God. And God's goal is to give the rule of the earth back to humanity and to bring judgment on the people that led human beings astray. And so as we wrapped up chapter 13, we saw that there were two beasts now that are that are in 
play as far as the world goes, that the beast that came out of the sea is the Roman Empire. But the beast that came off of land was unique. It did not represent a normal um a normal government it actually says that it spoke with the same voice and language as the other beast and but given power by the dragon that that's we know that's satan that's lucifer that they are now melding together into a new version of the roman empire that now is focused on the worship of the beast which is the symbol of rome itself which is the emperor and the mark of the beast was allegiance to the emperor that the emperor required every citizen to worship his image starting with nero and then other um caesars did the same thing the two largest of this were of course nero and domitian but other emperors did the same thing that starting with nero the caesars began to be worshiped as deities as god during as a god during their lifetime not after they had died and gone to the heavens but after while they were still alive and if a person refused to do that, they were not allowed entrance into the agora, into the marketplace. They weren't allowed to buy and sell food and their goods. And we saw a very big divide between the mark of God on his people, his seal, and the mark of the beast on the people. And so God is using these three sets of seven. We started with the land deed, right? That was not, no longer... Um, it, it's, the, the scroll is open, so there's no longer a land deed between God and the nation of Israel for the promised land. And God did not make a new one because now the land of the whole planet has been given over to God's people, the new Israel, the true Israel, which is the church, his heavenly family and his earthly family. The goal is for God to bring them back together in his plan of restoration and redemption that we're going to see at the end of this book. The second set of seven, that's what we were alluding to, it came out of the seals, which were seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets represent the unification of the people of Israel, that the, one of the promises, one of the three promises under the Mosaic Covenant, the first was the land, the second was the unity as a people. And God is using these events on earth, the plagues, the war, the destruction of Jerusalem to spread out the Israelites. The Jews are now going to be scattered all over the world into what's called the diaspora or the diaspora, depending on how you want to say it. And the diaspora is all over the world. And we talked about how at the end of festivals um, like the Passover Seder, that they end the Passover Seder by saying next year in Jerusalem. It's this hope and this longing for the nation of Israel, that the, the Jewish people, to be united together in the promised land. But we know that God has taken that away. And as we will see, God's not going to renew that covenant from the land. He's not going to, re not going to renew their, their promise to bring them back together as a single nation. Because as we've looked at already, God is no longer concerned with a single nation. He's concerned with every nation. That's why John heard that there would be 14,000, or excuse me, 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000 total from the nation of Israel. But he saw millions of people 
from every tongue, tribe, language, and nation. Like the, every everybody on the earth will have the opportunity to be part of the kingdom of God. And God, as we've talked about before, did not bring up a nation of Israel to keep them separate forever. He needed to keep them separate long enough for the Messiah to come. That out of a nation God created that did not fall into the pagan idolatrous worship at the hands of the, the heavenly beings over the table of nations, even though Israel did fall into pagan worship, this nation was meant to be set apart to bring redemption of the whole planet. And that's where we left off. We left off starting in the book of Revelation chapter 14. And as you turn there, like I said, we finished up chapter 13 by talking about the number and the mark of the beast. How most translations use 666 as the number of the beast, but earlier translations, the earliest manuscripts that we have actually list the number of the beast as 616. Now, it doesn't matter which one is which because both of them are translated through gematria, which is the Jewish use of numerology to code messages, into Caesar Nero or Nero Caesar, depending on which one you use. And so this was a coded message that John is sending. That's why he says that wisdom is needed here. That's what he says in the passage. He says uh, at the end of chapter 13, he says that in verse 18, wisdom is needing, needed here. Let one with understanding which, which is a phrase for people that are knowledgeable and educated in these things, solve the meaning of the number. And so it's the number of a man. He's saying it's the number of a human being. It's a person. And so we, we know, solving that using gematria, that this is the number of the beast translates into Caesar Nero or Nero Caesar. And so as we move into Revelation 14, that's the setting. As we continue through these trumpet judgments, where God is going to divide and scatter the Israelites. So let's pick up in chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. With him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. So John sees on Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, the 144,000 who were willing to stay true and to take the mark of God on their minds, on their foreheads. And this is a, the symbol of the seal of God, and we know that's the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that before. And so this represents the people from Israel who recognized the Messiah, who became the early church the first century church. And he, but as he sees them on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he then hears a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or a loud thunder. It's like the sound of many harpists playing together. Now, what is this sound? Well, normally, this is, this is talking about the voice of God. But as we look, it's, it's multiple things. So the next verses tell us exactly what it is. In verse 3, it's this great choir sang a wonderful new song. And so this is telling us that in, in he sees on earth the church set apart, no longer united with the Jews or the Gentiles, that they are set apart as their own people because they have received the Holy Spirit. But then in heaven, when he hears the sound, he looks and he hears and sees a choir. 
that sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They had kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies, and they are without blame. Now, whenever we use the word sacrifice, it's this idea of the giving of something. The giving of something precious to God to honor Him and to say, God, you are worthy of these things, that we give you what you first gave us. And that's what would happen when a person would go to the temple, they would offer a sacrifice of a precious animal, not because God needs food to eat. The people ate the, the, the animal after it was sacrificed. Parts of it would be completely burned up, like the fat and the liver and those things. But the people would eat the meat and the priests would take their share to feed themselves. But the giving of it was a surrendering to God, whether it was an animal, whether it was wine, whether it was grain, whether it was flour, whether it was birds, whether it was, you know, any of these things that were offered as a sacrifice to God, they were given up to say, God, you gave them to us first and we give you back some because you have created a system where all things that live, give. And we've talked about that before as well, that when living beings, things that are alive, stop giving, they stop living, they cease to live and eventually die. And that's true of all of the cycles of life that God has created in the earth. And so these people, now remember the 144,000 starts off representing the people of Israel, but eventually it represents the whole church, the whole body of Christ. And what's happening here is people are now giving a sacrifice of their lives because they refuse to worship the image of the beast, that's the statue of the emperor, and to take his mark. They are, they've kept themselves pure. That doesn't mean that they are completely innocent of any sin. It doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that they're like Jesus. It means that they are made righteous through Jesus, that because of what God has done on the cross, we now as the church are seen as pure in God's eyes. It doesn't mean they've told no lies ever. It means that when they were put to the test and said, would you denounce and say Caesar is Lord, would you denounce Jesus? They refused and they would rather die than live having worshiped the image of the beast. And so this 144,000 represents the church and they are honored as a sacrifice to God. Look what happens in verse 6. And I saw another angel flying through the sky carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted, give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Now this is a beautiful symbolic image of the gospel going through the whole earth. Now, remember, the earth at the time of the writer, which is what he would have understood in any apocalypse, we have to say, who is the writer and how did they understand the world? This is the Roman Empire. God sent the apostles, which eventually spread to other people who went into the world, the, the, the Roman Empire, and spread the gospel. And it went to every nation, tribe, language, and people. That the whole known world, within 30 years of the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel had reached there. And he's saying God, that now, because people are, can now be judged, the gospel has gone out and the world can be judged and people can be held accountable. 
You see, up until this point, before the coming of Jesus, that people, just as we talked about in the earlier episodes of this series in the book of Revelation, lived in a place called Sheol. Abraham's bosom. They lived in an area we translate Sheol into the grave or Hades. It was an afterlife, but it was a waiting period that people were forced to live with the memories of what they did and they would either have a time of rest or a time of torment based off the lives they lived and the coming judgment they knew was waiting them. That if they had, you know, lived lives that honored God, then they knew that their judgment would be fair and they would be brought into paradise. But if they had not, they knew that their judgment would lead them to being condemned. And now God can judge fairly. Why? Because the gospel has gone out to the whole world. And like I said, this is seen through the lens of apocalyptic literature. We know that God has not completely judged the whole planet yet. But according to the book of Romans, that every human being is now without blame for doing the best they can with what they can to recognize who God is and that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. That everybody can recognize that whether they've heard the gospel specifically or not, God is just. And so he will hold people accountable to their level of knowledge. And that's one of the great questions that always comes up that people say, oh, what, what happens to people who have never heard about Jesus? Does God send them to hell? Well, first off, God doesn't send anybody to hell. People go to hell on their own volition by choosing not to have a relationship with God. When people say, I don't want a relationship with you, whether it's a human or, or a divine relationship, that means we can't be in the same place. We don't have relationship. We're not going to live in the same home, the same life together. So God's heavenly home he made for us is for people who want relationship with him. And people who refuse that have to be away from him, and they go to that place called hell. We're going to see that called the lake of fire here later. And they are away from God, which means they're away from everything that is good. And so as we go through this, we recognize what these symbols mean. Let's go on to verse 8. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen. The great city is fallen, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Now, we know that Babylon is a symbol. We've talked about that before. Babylon represents the nation that took Israel into captivity in the beginning of this way back, you know, when Israel first was given over by God and said, God said, I'm no longer going to keep my end of the Mosaic Covenant because you haven't kept yours. And God took all of those things away. And of course, Babylon was defeated and taken over by Persia. Persia by the Greeks are also called the Seleucids and the Seleucids now by the Romans. This isn't literally the city of Babylon. It's a symbol. Babylon represents the Babylonians, which represents the, the nation that held Israel captive. So at the time of this writing, that would be Rome. So Babylon falling represents Rome falling. How is Rome going to fall? Well, we're going to see that unfold in the upcoming passages. But the angel is declaring that Babylon, that great city, has fallen. That's not literally the city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq, which is technically Persia. It's representing Rome. Rome is going to be defeated by God. And we're going to see what that means as we go through it. But God is bringing judgment because of the immorality that they led and they led other people, including God's people, into. Let's keep going in Revelation 9. How is the city of Babylon, how is Rome going to fall? Verse 9. 
Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast or his statue or accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. What is all this talking about? Well, let's use what we've already used in the past. We understand that the beast is Rome. The statue, his image, would be the statue of of the Caesars. His mark would be that mark they would receive when they saluted the statue and said Caesar is Lord. It's the mark of their worship. Or we may even say that it was that certificate that they would receive under people like Domitian. But specifically, it says the hand and the forehead. That would be the mark that would be left on their hands and forehead from worshiping the image of Rome, which is Caesar. And it says that because they did that, they must drink the wine of God's anger. Once again, it's, it's a symbol. It's not literal wine. God is going to bring his wrath on them. And because this is symbolism, we know that this actually isn't this physical torture like we would see in Dante's Inferno. There's not going to be physical torture for these people. They're not going to be burned alive. That, that's not God's heart is not torture. But there is a torment that comes. The difference between torture and torment is torture is caused on the outside. When somebody is burned alive, if somebody is thrown in a dungeon and whipped and beaten or, or stretched on a rack or burned with, with irons, that is physical torture. It's on the outside externally. Torment comes from the inside. And that's a very specific difference to make and understand. How will people be tormented? Because they will recognize that their decision to reject a relationship with God has taken them away from all things that are good. And it says it goes on forever and ever, no relief day or night. It's talking about this eternal consequence of refusing a relationship with God because instead these people chose earthly pleasure. And instead of taking the mark of Christ and being sealed by the Holy Spirit, they rejected it. Now, this is a key difference to make between Christians who may have fallen away and came back and repented or those who never did. Because this great discussion that the early church fathers argued about is what happens to those who in a moment of weakness and selfishness decided to worship the statue of the emperor. And we've talked about this before. I mean, as a father and a husband, if I lived during that time, and my wife is an amazing and educated you know, worker and provider, and in our culture, she works and, and, and is able to, to contribute to our home economy, and she's a partner with me in that process. But at this time, women did their business in the home. They didn't actually have jobs and careers, by and large. And so a husband would be responsible for all of these things. If a husband couldn't make money, his family starved. They would lose their home and be left on the streets in poverty. Christians were subjected to this. They could not go in the marketplaces. They couldn't buy, sell, and trade. They couldn't work in a lot of the jobs because they were connected to the pagan worship of the, the Roman gods. And so in a moment of weakness and selfishness, I could sympathize with somebody who sprinkled that simple incense in the fire. It's just a little fire, just a little sprinkle of incense, and say Caesar is Lord and salute the statue. I, I could sympathize with that. But what about a person that did that later 
was overcome with guilt, came back to God and said, God, forgive me. Does that mean they have to go to, to, to be separated from God for eternity? No, that's not what this is talking about. This is saying those who refused to come to God. These are the ones that did not come back in, into repentance and receive the Holy Spirit. Anyone who receives the Holy Spirit is the person that puts total trust in, puts their trust for eternity in Jesus. That's what the book of Ephesians tells us, that we receive the Holy Spirit when we put our trust in him. If we're still alive, we still have hope. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose. If you're here, you have hope. And so we got to be careful not to, to make that black and white concrete situation because that was what the early church fathers fought over and understood was if a person comes back in repentance are there social consequences and guilt and shame you better believe it but that's not an eternal punishment and consequence all right we've still got some time so let's keep going into verse 12. this means that god's holy people must endure persecution patiently obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in jesus and i heard a voice from heaven saying write this down Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. So what we see is that, that God is telling his people through this letter, this message, that persecution is coming, and you've got to endure it patiently. You see, the church did not win its victory through force. That's what the Jewish people wanted, to raise up a mighty army. And we're going to see that more clearly as we get to the end of the book, that God's kingdom doesn't come with violence. We've seen how religious groups all over history and all over the world have tried to force and legislate their beliefs, even the Christian church. Think about things like the Spanish Inquisition and the Crusades. You cannot force people to trust God. It doesn't work that way. You cannot legislate morality that way. Don't get me wrong, we have law enforcement and judicial systems here in the United States to, to in, impose a law and, and keep order. But we're talking about true trust in God. Sure, you can make people behave a certain way, but you can't make people believe things in their heart. Only true trust can come through relationship. And so love is what defeats God's battles and wins the victory. And it says this, that people who die in the faith are going to receive rest. They, the Holy, now on says the Holy Spirit, they are blessed if they die in the Lord. This is talking about the martyrs that we saw that every single one of the apostles was killed for their faith. The only one, according to church history, who survived was John the Beloved, who's writing this book, and he died in prison. Some people say he might have gotten out for a short time before he died of old age, but he spent most of his life and his final years in a prison camp, right? Working in, you know, st stone quarries, right? This would have been a terrible end. And they said that was after they tried to boil him in oil and he wouldn't die. And I just, you can only imagine what this was like for every one of them. And this wasn't like, oh, just death by lethal injection. This was torturous, gruesome deaths that I won't describe for you, but you can look it up if you want. I mean, bloody, gory deaths painful, excruciating torments, tortures rather, right? Because we said torment comes from within, torture comes on the outside. And because of this, this is really what spread the gospel because people were amazed that the Christians would not simply worship the statue of Nero and go home or any of the other emperors that came after Nero. 
why endure the tortures of the arena with gladiators and wild animals? Why be physically harmed and, 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 and tortured and, die, and through, through martyrdom? Because they refused to say that Jesus is not Lord, Caesar is. No, they would say, no, only Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we see in verse 14, this is what happens next. Because all of these people refused to, you know, to recant, to, to, to break their vow to God and to honor the beast, which is Rome, right? the, the Caesars, they died. And this was incredibly amazing to the Romans, and they just could not figure out why. Why would these Christians do this? And so they began to study and look into and test the claims of this Jesus, and they were curious and wanted to know why would these people go through all of this? Let's finish with these last few verses. In Revelation 14, starting in verse 14, Then I saw a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was someone like the Son of Man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, Swing the sickle, for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the whole earth was harvested. Now we can use our, our knowledge so far. We know this is Jesus. Somebody coming on the clouds with glory. This is the, the, the reference back to the, the passage in Daniel where the one like a son of man comes on the clouds and receives all power and authority from the ancient one, the ancient of days. So Jesus is coming now in judgment. He looks like the son of man. He has a crown on his head. He is, this is Jesus. He has a sickle in his hand. Sickles are used for harvesting. Now, it says he's going to harvest the whole earth. But once again, what's the whole earth to the reader? This would have been Rome. The Roman Empire is going to be harvested by Jesus, that the Jesus is going to bring judgment. Now, what would you use a sickle to harvest? This is wheat. That once you gather wheat, wheat has to be separated. The wheat from the chaff. The chaff is, is worthless. It's not good for anything. It's not even good to be fed to animals. And you, so you burn it. But the wheat, the grains of wheat are kept. That's why this metaphor of the sickle and the harvest time is so, is so important because this is where, just as Jesus said, there's going to be a separation from those who received the mark of the beast, that would be the chaff, and the wheat kernels, that would be the ones who did not, who stayed true to God and to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus talked about this when he said, on the day of judgment, there will be a separation. He used two different metaphors. He used the the you know sheep and the goats and the the fish that were good and the trash fish that were gathered in the net. All the trash fish was was thrown out, but the good fish was kept. This is what Jesus is telling John about. And what we're going to see is this is going to judgment is going to happen even greater in our next session together. So until that next session, hey. I hope this is helping. I hope it helps you make sense. Until next time, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.